Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about another terrific podcast called Historically Thinking. It's hosted by Al Zambone, a historian, and every week Al talks to historians about how they do their work and about their books and about history in general. This is a wonderful podcast, and it's one of our favorites at the New Books Network, and I really encourage you to subscribe to Historically Thinking. You can go to historicallythinking.org and learn all about it. It's on Apple Podcasts, and you can subscribe there. And we'd like to give you a little taste of Historically Thinking, so we're going to republish some of Al's terrific episodes, such as the one that follows. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello. For nearly a century after the First Crusade captured Jerusalem, that ancient city became the nucleus of several kingdoms and principalities established by the Crusaders. At the political, social, and cultural heart of their subsequent history were a series of remarkable women who exercised power and influence in a way nearly unknown in Western Europe at that time. With me today is Catherine Pangonis, author of Queens of Jerusalem, The Women Who Dared to Rule, a remarkable chronicle of lives lived in times of extreme danger and immense complexity. Catherine Pangonis, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So this story is set in, um, to my mind, I used to tell students the most romantically named uh, place in all of medieval Europe, which immediately when you start to do all these names, you sound like you're an Arthurian romance. So could you describe what the Westerners call this place and sort of its, its cultural resonance? Yeah, so the the stage for all the drama and the history that takes place in my book is an area of land known to medieval Westerners as Outremer, which obviously comes from French meaning overseas. So it's a land that's defined by its otherness from Europe, its distance, its unreachability, it's the land across the sea. And geographically, speaking in modern terms where it is today, is it's this sliver of sort of coastline and a bit a little bit more that runs from southern Turkey around just north of the modern city called Antakya, which was in antiquity Antioch, and a little bit further into eastern Turkey around the city now known as Urfa, Shani Urfa, which in older, which in historical times was Edessa. And then it runs down through modern day Lebanon, Israel, and Palestine to the edge of the Gaza Strip and the border with Egypt. Um, and so it's, it's the area, but, you know, in brief, it's the Holy Land. And it's the area around that that, you know, takes over, which occupies some of Israel, Palestine, Jordan, Syria, and southern and eastern Turkey. And there are about, at, at, at its height, there are about, what, four different principalities in Uthman. Exactly. So exactly. So this this is the territory that was conquered by the Knights of the First Crusade. And they conquered it sort of sequentially. It wasn't all done in one go and it wasn't all one territory. So through that 
period of conquest, four distinct Latin states emerged. Those were the counties of Edessa, which sort of occupies the area I mentioned around eastern Turkey, the city of Urfa. Um, then there was the county of Tripoli, which is on the what is now the Lebanese coast and occupies an area of lands that is similar to modern day Lebanon. Then to the north of that is the Principality of Antioch, one of the key frontier states. And then, of course, the heart of this land is the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem, which is which occupies some of Jordan, but mostly Israel and Palestine and centres on the holy city of Jerusalem. So, and these states have different relationships with each other at different times. So at various points, um, Antioch and Edessa and Tripoli seek to assert their independence from the Kingdom of Jerusalem. And at other points, they're very much sort of suzerain states. So it depends on the rulers and the time, the relationship they have with each other. But for the most part, they're hard and fast allies as the Christian states in the East. And uh, and just a little bit beyond them is the renewed, what should I say, the renewed um, Byzantine Empire under the Komnenos. There's the is it Mamluks yet in Egypt. And then there are these somewhat at the moment disintegrated powers in Syria and Iraq, uh, all Islamic. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, you have Islamic enemies of the Crusaders on all sides and you have the Caliphate in Egypt, you have the Seljuks and, but there's a lot of, and, and uh, the Sultanate of Rome, but you have a lot of um, uh, disunity among them. And the fact that these, the fact that these different Islamic factions, different Islamic kingdoms are not banded together is partly what allows the first crusade to exceed, succeed and to capture this territory. Um, yeah, because you have the disintegration of Malik Shah's kingdom and the, the feuding between his sons and so on and so forth. But yeah, but then this will all come to be united at the end of the period that I begin to talk about when Saladin begins to unite the different factions together and bring about this concept of medieval jihad to drive the Christians out of the Holy Land. So it is at, at this time, it's a frontier state, but yeah, exactly. So we were talking before we started recording about the... Um the deep fascination both of us have with this place and this time. And you, uh, and partly because it's a frontier state, but as you point out, it also seems perhaps to us, moderns like it because it seems like us. Could you explain that? I thought that was, that was really perceptive. Um, well, I think, you know, the appeal of, you know, studying this period in this region is just this dynamic multiculturalism that you see coming on the back of religious conflict, actually, because Jerusalem is obviously a holy city for the three great Abrahamic religions. Judaism, Christianity and Islam all have holy sites of inestimable importance within the walls of the old city of Jerusalem. And so this brings followers of all these religions from many different cultural backgrounds to this place. Um, and it, the result is an intensely multicultural and diverse society. And I think that that resonates um, a lot with modern with modern readers, and also so does the 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 ever present conflict in that region. It's relatable now as then. This is a region that has never ceased to be a, a focal point of religious conflict um, and of sectarian difference. And so we you know that we can see reflections of the past and the present, and vice versa. And I think that does resonate with modern readers and modern audiences. So your your story. Um really begins the marriage, uh, well, a marriage in the very seasonal, uh, we're recording this on what, January 3rd, 4th. And uh, it's, uh, it begins with a marriage in the Church of the Holy Nativity in Bethlehem between Baldwin II, King of Jerusalem, and Morphia. Could you explain a little bit about both of them and sort of the, the power, what, what their union did? 
Yes. So, hate to do it. M- m- tiny correction. It wasn't oh. the marriage and the holy sorry, activity. Sorry. It was. The it was their joint. Co- it was their joint right. coronation. Yes. Exactly. Yes. So they exactly. Were mar- no, don't worry. They were married years before in the county of Edessa because Baldwin became the Count of Edessa following the First Crusade. And while he was there, he married Morphia, who was an Armenian princess from the neighbouring territory of Melitene. And this was a political... Could you explain um, what it means to be... This, I forgot, I left out... I'm very... Like so many people have throughout mm-hmm. history, I've left out the Armenians, um, who are, uh-huh, yeah. confusingly enough, uh, located very much closer to uh, Jerusalem at the time or in, in, in modern Turkey than where we think of them as being now. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, and a lot of Armenians would refer to would refer to this day to large swathes of Turkey as Western Armenia. So it's definitely um, it, his, it's it, the historic heartland of the Armenians is the area now is Anatolia and the mm. Armenian highlands, which is all now occupied by the modern state of Turkey. Um, and so, and the Armenians had a huge empire, you know, even before this period, they predate, you know, that the Armenian Empire predates this Crusader period. At this point, there's still a highly significant presence in the region. And, you know, they're, they're elite soldiers and elite builders, and they are, they are, and they are the native, and they are, they make up a large swathe of the native Christian population of Anatolia and the Middle East at this time. And they're also one of the longest standing Christian populations in the East. Armenia was the first empire, nation, whatever you would like to call it, they're slightly anachronistic terms, to convert to Christianity as like a state religion. So they have a long, they have a long, and they have a long history of as Christians in the East and of occupying this land. And as a result, they're a very important and natural ally for the Crusaders as they march through, because while their religions are not exactly the same, they're both branches of Christianity, and this this brings them together. Um, And so, yes, when Baldwin is made Count of Edessa, he follows the tradition of the time, which is to marry, you know, uh, an Armenian princess to solidify his alliance with his with the neighboring Armenian lords. And in this case, it's Gabriel of Melitene. And they're quite an interesting family because although they're Armenian by race, um, they follow the Greek Orthodox religion, which is unusual because Armenian Orthodox and Greek Orthodox are distinct. But in any case, we know that he marries Morphia, an Armenian princess who brings with her a significant dowry, an allegiance with her father. And we know that she's of Greek Orthodox religion, but presumably she would have had to convert in some, you know, to at least some extent to the religion of her husband. Um, but yes, and then their marriage progresses. They have several daughters during this time. Bald, while they are the Count of Edessa, Count and Countess of Edessa, Baldwin is ha- captured and held in captivity for some years. When he comes, at, when he's released from ha- captivity, he goes home and he meets his daughter for the first time. I always love this idea of a child being introduced to their father some years later for a, a first meeting. Um, and then, yes, then their their fortune changes because Baldwin's cousin, Baldwin the First of Jerusalem, dies childless, and Baldwin is summoned to Jerusalem to become Baldwin II and become king of Jerusalem. And this brings Morphia to to the status of queen of Jerusalem. And she is the first woman to be crowned queen of Jerusalem. And this brings us to that very important ceremony that you just touched upon earlier, this coronation in the Church of the Holy Nativity in Bethlehem on Christmas Day. And this is an immensely important political event. Um, And they've chosen the, the setting and the date very carefully because it allies them with the coronation of King David and, of course, the birth of Jesus Christ, which are very auspicious, um, auspicious figures to be aligned with in Christian canon. But also the coronation of the Emperor Charlemagne on Christmas Day. So it's it's a very <laughs> auspicious. Right. 
Yes, it's a triple. It's a triple crown for them in terms of the symbolism of their coronation. But from my perspective, what's interesting about it in terms of the relationship between Baldwin and Morphia is that they were crowned together. This is the first king of Jerusalem to bother having his wife crowned and to share his day with her in this way. And he actually delayed his coronation until his wife and daughters could be present for it and share in that glory with them. So we can already see Firstly, the respect that he's showing to his wife as his consort, but also, you know, perhaps signalling his dynastic ambition that he wants his wife and his children present at this very sacred moment where, you know, he's anointed with holy oil and he assumes this burden, this honour of King of Jerusalem. So it's a momentous occasion. By this time, they have three daughters, four daughters. How many daughters do they yes, have? They have three at this point. They have yeah. the, the three who were born in Odessa, the three eldest, which are Melisande, Alice and Hodierna. And then not long after the coronation, their fourth daughter, Yvette, will be born. Mm-hmm. And so she has the special status of being the, the first child born to, a reign, to reigning monarchs in, in the kingdom of Jerusalem. So she's special in her own way. And he's picking up the pieces. Uh, Baldwin II is um, he is I I, I, I how, how to put it? Historians might call him a shit. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> he, he he's um, he's not a nice guy, and he's also not. It's like several other people in this story. Not only can they are they often cruel, they're often incompetent as well. Um, think of Andronicus. Um, mm-hmm. but, but Baldwin, uh, really manages to ruin relations with, um, Sicily, which is a uh, really important people to have on your side at the time in the Mediterranean. This is, this is Baldwin the first. Baldwin the first. Yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, Baldwin exactly. the first. And Baldwin the second is in a way always picking up pieces that have been dropped by Baldwin the first or even, and by other princes in the area. Yes, exactly. So Baldwin the first was, he was, a, he was a very competent ruler in many ways, but he was very expedient with his relationships with women and with uh, diplomatic relations. So yes, he destroys any links that the kingdom of Jerusalem could have had with the kingdom of Sicily, which is a serious mistake because, you know, the position Sicily occupies at the heart of the Mediterranean means that it's a, would have been a good, a good point, to, a good place from which to draw troops and aid and stuff because it's much closer than than France. And yeah, anyway, so yeah. that was a mistake. And he did, he did this by repudiating the the mother of the king of Sicily. He brought her over, brought her over with gold and sh- ships and men, took all her gold and ships and men and then sent her packing back again. So yes, that that was not a deft piece of political manoeuvring. And Baldwin II, yeah, follow, he follows on from his cousin and has a longer rule and yes, arguably does a much better job. And he's certainly better at maintaining human relationships um, for certain. Um he, what, how would you describe his uh, relationship? You've already indicated part of what you think, but his relationship with Morphia. Um, is, does he really see her as a sort of a co-ruler? Is that going too far? It probably is, think- but, it, um, but the, certainly he sees her as extremely important in maintaining the network of relationships power. Let's put it that way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so I, 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 I would agree with you that it's slightly, it would be too far. Well, you know, not necessarily, but we don't have the evidence to support that he was saw her as a co-ruler. We don't, we don't have that. The chronicles don't testify to that. But you know, it wouldn't. But you know that it also doesn't suggest otherwise. We just can't be sure of it. But what we can be sure of is that he holds her in high esteem and has significant respect for her, um, because you know many rulers in his position, as his predecessor did would have repudiated wives that didn't bring him what he wanted. Now, Morphia did not bring what she, you know, Morphia 
was an excellent tactical choice of wife when Baldwin was Count of Edessa. She was the daughter of the neighbouring lord, and so it was an important allegiance. But actually, not long after their marriage, Morpheus' father lost his territory and was driven out of Melitene. So all of a sudden, that's a useless allegiance. <laughs> so the, dis, the, dis, the daughter of a dispossessed Armenian lord is not... Uh, a politically sound match for the king of Jerusalem any longer. And I feel quite certain that Baldwin I would have found an excuse to put Morphia aside, but Baldwin II did not. The other provocation, if you like, that might have caused Baldwin II to think about repudiating his wife is the fact that she did not give birth to any sons. She only gave birth to daughters. And this can endanger the succession, which is seriously not what you want in a medieval, you know, fledgling kingdom it's it's the what it's the last thing you want actually from from a uh, strategic standpoint but Baldwin II never makes any noises about divorcing Morphia and he never and he does not seek to remarry after her death either so this suggests some level of devotion and I think you know another element of this is that Morphia has clearly proven herself competent you know because an acceptable time for a woman to wield power is when she's holding the fort for her husband. And there are two periods in Baldwin II's marriage to Morphia where he is in captivity for, you know, periods of more than a year, you know, where he's a prisoner of war. And in that those times, Morphia, it seems, has revealed herself to be competent. And indeed, some chronicles testify that not only was she competent at holding the fort in his absence, she was instrumental in orchestrating his escape and in negotiating his release. So there's, you know, we have some sources that testify to her sending a crack team of Armenian sort of special forces to break, to spring him out of jail, described as monk, disguised as monks. So we do see her asserting, you know, her intelligence and some power and initiative in this time. And as, as a queen consort from a different racial background, that's quite remarkable, actually. Can we, that, that second, um, that second captivity in which mm -hmm. she, um, successfully unsuccessfully sends the armenians to rescue baldwin uh, because there's a lot there we can't get into all the details they're they're absolutely incredible and i look forward to the miniseries um the uh but one of the real this is where the the benefits of having daughters comes into play and mm -hmm. one of the benefits quite callously is that they can serve as hostages um, yes, well, it's it's sons as well. It's not sons just as well. It's, it's true, but you, you can also yeah. you can marry off the daughters. You can. Th this is the. There's a lot of problems in, especially in this frontier, this threatened frontier kingdom. There's a lot of problems with not having a man who can lead troops into battle as king. Um, mm -hmm. And we'll see that again and again in this history. But there's also some advantages to have being able to have daughters who can tie other people to you. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, so daughters are, while they're not your first choice of offspring in this time, they they have their own advantages in the political game. And, and you know, part of this, yes, you've mentioned with Yvette, Yvette is taken, is serves as a hostage for her father at one point. So she's a valuable pawn in that sense. I think we'll talk, we might come on to discuss that a bit more later. But yeah, daughters as a tool of uh, matrimonial allegiance are very important. I mean, someone asked me, you know, what's something that's missing from modern foreign policy that they had in the medieval times? And the answer is arranged marriage. I mean, because it does forge, it does forge close, you know, bonds between people. And 
But then there's also a parallel to be drawn between what is what is an arranged marriage between two rival kingdoms? Is it a marriage or is it a hostage situation? But in any case, it does forge quite strong allegiances between between different factions of two different kingdoms. Well, let's talk and about. It can also, yeah. Oh, sorry. And I was going to say, and it can also by if the daughters marry wealthy and important people, it can bring, and this is crucial to the kingdom of Jerusalem, these marriages can bring in an influx of gold and an influx of fighting men. Because one thing the Latinese struggles with almost constantly is a chronic manpower shortage. And at other points, a lack of, a lack of funds as well. So being able to tempt rich men with powerful armies east with the promise of a marriage for princes of Jerusalem is a valuable tool that the kings of Jerusalem do exploit at various points. Um, let's talk about perhaps the, uh, my favorite crush of the Middle Ages, which is uh-huh. Baldwin II's eldest um, daughter, Melisande, who already, mm-hmm. the name is out of an Arthurian romance, just like Outremer. Um mm-hmm. She is in, in many ways the protagonist of your book i mean she's a continual she's a continual thread her influence lasts long beyond her death and during her life she is a powerful figure so describe i'm particularly interested in um how she is becomes prominent in her father's um idea of what the kingdom of jerusalem will be like after his death and you, you describe in royal charters how she she he begins to describe her yeah, exactly. So what is quite unusual about Melisande's upbringing is that she's her education is clearly taken very seriously by her father. And from her teenage years and in her teenage years and her adolescence, Melisande is clearly being groomed for succession in some in many ways. So as a teenage girl, as a young adult, she's sitting in on meetings of the Haute-Cour, which is the high council of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. And prince teenage princesses are not usually afforded this honour, this level of clearance to political matters and to the way the kingdom is being run. So it's clear that her father is educating her at his knee in politics and how to run the kingdom. Um, He's also, as you've rightly mentioned, referring to her in royal charters and she's witnessing royal charters. So she's standing witness to laws being passed, to grants of land being made, all these things. And her name is being signed as well, I won't say the Latin, but, you know, Melisande, daughter of the King of Jerusalem, heiress to the Kingdom of Jerusalem in these charters, which is giving her very clear legal and political status in the kingdom. And there are two reasons for this. You know, one is that Baldwin is clearly grooming her for succession. He's clearly sees her as a fitting candidate to rule the kingdom and he wants to make sure that she has all the tools and respect that she needs to make that happen. Or there's another view of it, which is that he's trying to signal to the wider international community that Melisande is without doubt his heir and whoever marries her will become the king of Jerusalem. They will be marrying the next queen of Jerusalem, the heir to the kingdom. And these, you know, these are both valid. I think they both, I think both of, I, I don't think these theories are mutually exclusive. I think they can come together because I believe that Baldwin is fully grooming Melisande and making sure she's educated and able to play a part in ruling the kingdom. And he's trying to, he's trying to tempt an advantageous husband across the sea to take on to take on stewardship of the kingdom of Jerusalem after his death, which eventually he finds in uh, yes. Fulk of Anjou, uh, exactly a, a name completely forgotten to modern listeners, but um, you know uh, quite the lad uh, at the time. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, and with a, a whole family of lads. Uh, that so he's he's in many ways the father of many kingdoms. 
So could you? Yes, yeah, he's the patriarch. Yeah, exactly. He's Fulke of Anjou is while much forgotten, is arguably the patriarch of the Angevin dynasty and the Angevin kings of England. He is a man. You know, he's the he's the he's the Count of Anjou, which is a powerful and wealthy territory in France, and he has a very successful career governing that land. He also goes on crusade in his youth, um, and he's a powerful man with with huge. Um, limitless dynastic ambitions, and we can see that in two very important marriages that take place in his family in this at the early part of the 12th century, which is that the marriage of his son Geoffrey of Anjou, who might be better known to listeners, to Matilda of England. So Fulk marries his son to the heiress to the English throne. I mean, she becomes the heiress after the wreck of the White Ship and you know the death of her older brother, but the heiress to the English throne nonetheless, and. And in a similar time period, Fulk crosses the sea to marry the heiress to the kingdom of Jerusalem. So he is trying to get his bloodline on as many thrones as possible. He's not content with with Anjou alone. He wants to expand and he has dynastic ambition. Um, and he is an attractive candidate to Baldwin II as a husband for his daughter because he does have experience. He has been on crusade. He has defended the county of Anjou. He's clearly deft at political manoeuvring. He's negotiated this very advantageous ma- match for his older son. He's a seasoned warrior who comes with wealth and with soldiers so he is a good match for Melisande in many ways slight differences of course that they're years apart in age um, and certainly in the early part of their marriage their temperaments are not suited to one another and and therein lies some problems that will emerge yeah I, I was thinking of Fulk as being elderly but then I realized I did the, looked at the ages and realized he's in his mid-30s even at, at yeah, the I, late 30s, even at the same time that Jeffrey, his son, is marrying at the age of 15, which is, you know, yeah. young, even, for, even by medieval standards for, for men to get mm. married. But Yeah, indeed, indeed. It's sort of the, it's the cusp of legality. Um, exactly. So, yeah, Fulk, but Fulk is older than Melisande. I think I, I can't I can't recall the timeline exactly at the top of my head. I think he's probably in his early 40s, but you're right. It yeah. might be late 30s. Maybe late they 30s or the 30s. They're, they're years apart in age and they're, diff- they're years apart in life experience and in motivation. Because as w- what we will see later in our discussions, you know, Folk is very much coming over to rule the kingdom of Jerusalem on his own terms. He's not, he hasn't been tempted to leave his very beautiful and secure county of Anjou behind to come across the sea to a, a bit of a mess, to be honest. Utremer is not an easy, not an easy kingdom to take on. Um, there's, you know, it's constant warfare, constant rebellions, constant threats. Um, he's not taking on this massive challenge to share power with a with a young wife. He's coming over there to rule on his own terms, and as as we'll discuss shortly, I think. Well, let's get to that. He will clash with his wife. Yeah, yeah let's get to that. He, I mean, it, it, as we would say, he gets sandbagged by his father-in-law. Uh, in yes. Baldwin the Second's, uh, when Baldwin the Second changes his will in in Fulk's presence, I believe it must have been a hell of a shock. Um, so yeah, can- so things yeah things start off all right for Fulk when he comes east. You know, he's got this very by all, by all accounts, well, I'm assuming, you know, perfectly attractive young wife waiting for him. The marriage goes goes on pretty well. They have a son very promptly. Everything's going well. Baldwin the Second gives Fulk prominent political positions at the court. He's present at the meetings of the Oakcur. He supports. Fulk giving some political offices to his mates. You know, it was all going fine. And then, you know, conveniently for Fulk, Baldwin II takes ill and 
takes to his deathbed. And Falk's like, right, I've been over here. I've created a power base. I've got this son. I'm pretty secure. Now the old king's going to die and I'm going to take over. This is not what happens. Baldwin II summons Falk, Melisande, and their baby grandson, the hypothetical Baldwin III, to the side of his deathbed, along with all the other important men who are present in Jerusalem at this time, the clergy, the laity, everyone, everyone who's around. And on his deathbed, when the solemnity of the occasion, the death of the last great crusading lord, the king of Jerusalem, he says he's making a change to his will. And that change is that he is not leaving his power just to Falk, as was previously planned and assumed. He says that he's changing it to leave power in a triumvirate to Falk, Melisande and the baby, Baldwin III. So Falk is only inheriting one, one third of the power that he thought he was inheriting. And Melisande, his wife, a woman, is inheriting an equal third of this power. And in, you know, and in theory, the baby is also inheriting a third. But for now, that doesn't count. So as far as that goes, Melisande and Falk now have equal claims to power in the kingdom, equal claims to political authority. And this makes Melisande the first queen regnant of Jerusalem, which is monumentous. Um, and not at all what Falk expected. So this leads to serious conflict between husband and wife. So why do you think that Baldwin II did that? I mean, because I, I've been trying to figure out the, yeah, why? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, there are a few reasons, but, you know, the the issue we keep coming back to when we think about the medieval mindset is the emphasis on bloodline and dynasty. That's why that's why Fulk came over to Jerusalem. He wanted his bloodline on the throne of Jerusalem. That's why Fulk married Geoffrey to Matilda of England. It's the reason for all these political marriages. It's all about bloodline. And Baldwin II, as a shrewd, savvy political leader who knew Baldwin I, knows as well as anyone that medieval kings can make up pretenses to repudiate and divorce wives and that the wives can are powerless in the face of this. And the last thing Baldwin II would want is for Fulk, to, uh, following his death, to find a reason to repudiate Melisande, to disinherit Baldwin III, to marry another woman from another land or another kingdom, and put his new children on the throne of Jerusalem. Baldwin II wants to make sure that the throne of Jerusalem remains tied to his bloodline. Um, and so I think he's trying to curb Fulk's ability to oust Melisande from power, He's trying to curb his ability to usurp her power and to throw his bloodline off the throne. The other reason is, if he's thinking about the safety of the kingdom and the stability of the kingdom, Melisande is a huge asset to Fulk. Melisande is half Armenian. Melisande has been born and bred in the Crusader states. She is a native. She understands the land in a way that Fulk never will. And she commands allegiances from groups of people that Fulk, as a foreigner, will never be able to command or to imitate. So Melisande is an important political tool. Her voice is important for keeping cohesion and loyalty within the within the Crusader states. And so he wants to make sure that her voice is heard as well and that she she is seen as ruling the country as well because she is the link to the original Crusaders who captured the land and she is a link to the local Christian population as well. Uh, how do... How do we know anything about Melisande's personality or even her appearance? I mean, is there anything that we can know about her that is – I'm sure this is the question that people will ask you in like book talks. What did she look like? Mm -hmm. What what did she like to eat? What was her favorite club? I mean, this is, uh -huh. these are the sort of details that, say, a modern biographer would give us about anyone from you know Jeremy Corbyn to Margaret Thatcher. Um, and uh, But with Melisande, you – it's hard. It's very hard. 
Yes. So, I mean, the, the major issue in writing a book about medieval women, particularly medieval women in the Latin East, is that the primary source material you're working with are, for the most part, chronicles written by churchmen. And medieval churchmen really weren't that interested in women. And when they did, they wrote about them as little as they could and in tropes and stereotypes and cliches. So while I have, you know, I'm an unabashed fan of William of Tyre, the main chronicler of the Crusader period. And he is a beautiful writer who gives m so much detail about the appearance and dispositions of all the kings of Jerusalem. He completely skips over the queens, even the ones he likes, like Melisande. So the only way we can have a glimpse of Melisande's appearance or what she might have looked like is actually through a description William gives of her son. So when he describes Baldwin III as an adult, Melisande's eldest son, he writes that he writes of Baldwin, his features were comely and refined and his complexion was florid, a proof, of innate, a proof of innate strength. In this respect, he resembled his mother. So in this description of her son, we can learn that perhaps Melisande's features were comely and refined, perhaps her complexion was florid, because in this way she looks like her son. And then he goes on to write that Baldwin's build was on the stockier, heavier side and not spare like his mother. So from this, we can discern that she was probably quite attractive and that she was thin and emanated the strength of character and that she had European colouring, the sort of florid complexion, um, which suggests she took after her father and the Frankish side of her family rather than her mother's Armenian colouring. But that's all we have to go on from mm -hmm. Ellison's appearance. But in terms of discerning other traits about her personality and character, we can look at her career and what she achieved and how she responded to the challenges she was given. And we can certainly certainly deduce that she was a passionate and tenacious woman whose emotions lay quite close to the surface. When provoked, her fury was a force to be reckoned with. Um, and also that she was very active. You know, we have descriptions of her going on hunting trips with her husband and so on and so forth. So the image that comes together from these sparse details is of a, a passionate and a passionate and charismatic woman with, with a lot of presence who yeah, does not shrink from a challenge. And yeah, exactly well, that sort I, of thing. As we'll get to in just a second, her wrath is terrible. Um, but we mm. can say that of of not just her, but also her sisters. Um, yes, should, so they're, a, they're a fiery bunch. They're a fiery <laughs> bunch. And in many ways, uh, they're prone to revolting. Uh, and in fact, yes. Alice, uh, the second, uh, Baldwin the second, second daughter, actually revolts against him. Could you briefly describe Indeed. that? Because that's like a that's a taste of things to come. Yeah, Alice is brilliant. She's a complete firecracker and she makes loads <laughs> of mistakes. You know, there's, I love Alice, but I can't pretend to think that she was the most sensible of her sisters. She was and she she's the one who dies the first and probably and she makes a lot of trouble for herself. But she takes us on a she takes us on a roller coaster on an adventure before before her eventual decline. But yeah, her first rebellion. Um well, she's the first of her sisters to marry. She marries young in her late teens, and she's married to this prodigal prince, so the, the son of the poster boy, the hero of the First Crusade, who is Bohemond I, Bohemond of Antioch. She marries Bohemond II, um, who's born and raised in Italy and then comes to claim his inheritance and her hand from across the sea. It is the stuff of medieval romance. And he's one of the most attractive men described by William of Tyne. You know, he's beautiful, he's young, he's in... You know, the, he's at the peak of his physical strength and looks and everything. And the marriage starts well. They have a child very quickly, a daughter called Constance, who is also going to go on to do amazing things in her lifetime. But then tragedy strikes. And just a couple of years after their wedding, Beaumont II is killed in Cilicia and his head is cut off and sent as a trophy to the Caliph of Baghdad. So it ends in grisly, grisly grief. 
Um, and the position that Alice then finds herself in is not 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 one she would choose to be in because as a widow she has very few rights. In Uchumer, you know, a widow technically has the rights to choose her husband from three candidates given to her, but she certainly doesn't have the right to refuse to marry, and she has no say in who those three candidates are. So she's she's really backed into a corner, and her father is doubtless going to force her to marry again very quickly because of as we've talked about a daughter's uses as a political tool for marriage and Alice doesn't want this she doesn't want to be taken away from Antioch the city she's now lived in for three years she doesn't want to give up custody of her daughter and she wants to retain control in the city she's been controlling the city a lot while her husband's been away on campaign she's got this taste of freedom and this taste of power and she doesn't want to give that up so she tries to claim rulership of Antioch for herself and rule as regent for her baby daughter. But her father obviously has very different ideas. He wants to install a seasoned soldier, a male regent as lord of Antioch. And you can see his point of view. It's a frontier state. You want an experienced military commander running the show there. So I sympathise with Baldwin to some degree there. But yes, so Alice decides to try and muster the city against her father. Her father is marching from Jerusalem. She closes the gates of the city against him. And in her desperation, when she struggles to find allies among the Christians, she the chronicles say that she sends an emissary to Zengi, the Turkish warlord, um, the Atabeg, to ask him to ally with her and to send, you know, to send her troops. And there's even a suggestion that she promises to surrender Antioch to him in exchange for the regency. So, which is definitely double crossing her own people. Um, Zengi, Zengi, a man who even the Islamic chroniclers think of as a bad egg. Yes. I mean, no, I don't, I think a bad egg is not the term because they, they, (laughs) they love him. They no, no. I mean, by all accounts, Zengi is a, is ferocious and he's a figure of admiration. Yes. He's a figure of admiration, but he's cruel as anything. He's well, they, cruel I, as anything. I, the, the, the basic, the, 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 the sense seems to be, thank God he's on our side. Yes, exactly. Thank God he's on your side. Yeah. Um, and, Alice, and Alice, the chronicles say that Alice sent him this beautiful gift as a way of will, winning his allegiance. So she sends him this beautiful white horse decked out in silver and white silk um, with a note saying, you know, please, you know, please ally with me. Please come to my aid. Please help me fight off my father. The problem is, is that this messenger is intercepted by her father. Oh. Um, the the chap with the horse is tortured to death, tells tells what's happening. And so Baldwin marches to Antioch. Alice has no help and the rebellion is very short lived and she has to beg for forgiveness and then is banished for the time being alone. But yeah, it's a, it's a remarkable episode and it's orchestrated by, you know, a 19 year old girl. But it's, it's fascinating <laughs> that that happened. Speak, uh, Let's talk also briefly about Yvette, um, who last was, uh, we mentioned, I think she was three when she was a hostage uh, uh, on on behalf of her father. And her father kind of left her there. Uh, He broke the terms of the, yeah, bit, yeah. Um, Ball of the second, he, he was no prize either when it comes to like, you know, always being on the side of truth, justice, and et cetera. Um, He, um, and some really terrible rumors are spread about her that she was perhaps sexually yeah. uh, violated in some way uh, as a three-year-old, a four-year-old, yeah. five-year-old. Exactly, and I'd, I'd say I would give very little credit to those rumors. I have to say, I think you know this. The it's hard to say because the words used have different meanings, and it comes down to a matter of translation. But you know, you know, if she violated has one meaning now, is that the correct translation right. of the original term? But tainted could yeah. be another translation of it, which doesn't necessarily mean sexual abuse. I think the idea that a Christian high status hostage 
um, who's being held as a surety against ransom would have been allowed to be raped or molested is is so is is minimal. Um, and on top of that, you know, it would have it would have brought the fury of Jerusalem. That, that there would have been no faith after that point. Also, what we have to understand is that the Christian sources writing those rumours are, you know, part of the motivation of those sources is to encourage more Christians to go east and to take up arms. So they're making everything as shocking as they can. They're trying to provoke like horror and fury in the Christians reading these documents. So we can't, we can't assume we can't, it's not a safe assumption that Yvette would have been molested in, in her captivity. But what is true is that she was given as hostage. So her father was taken hostage. Um, Morphia and other members of the kingdom managed to negotiate his release in exchange for ransom money. So gold and lands and so forth. But you know, in those days, there's no such thing as a bank transfer gold has to be collected and it has to be carried in treasure chests in wagons with horses and camels across you know seriously difficult terrain in danger of ambush so you can't just you know sign a check and say okay let him go so while while the ransom money is being brought for baldwin they have to leave something there as as insurance and what that that thing that they choose to leave there in insurance is the toddler Princess Yvette. So that's that's what brings about her time in captivity. And her father definitely plays Russian roulette with her life because he doesn't deliver on all the ransom. And he, in fact, and he was meant to promise to ally with the, the ransom of Timotash against the Bedouin and instead he allies with the Bedouin against Timotash. So he really takes a lot of risks there and does not win the Father of the Year award. But in any case, <laughs> Yvette is eventually returned safe and sound to her parents. But it changes the course of her future because having had that spell in captivity and being tainted or violated or whatever the case may be, she will not be able to make a, a good Christian marriage following that experience. So her career path, unlike that of her sisters, will not be in the political sphere, it will not be through marriage, it will not be through political power she will enter a nunnery um but her sisters have really got her back and so they melisande will eventually build her the richest and most beautiful and well-defended convent in the latin east for her to preside over which gives her a very high status position and a good deal of power in her own way so yeah it's one of those things that a modern uh, audience overlooks is how much sort of status well, i mean she's not the only princess abbess in the middle ages mm-hmm. and certainly and, not and they wield uh, extraordinary power because of both both their blood but also then also the the position they have as abbess mm. indeed no in the church the church is as power you know in, in many parts of medieval society the church commands more power than the secular lord the church is a hugely powerful body particularly in the kingdom of Jerusalem, the holy city. So let's talk about Melisande and Fulk and uh, her and Melisande's wrath. Um, it yeah. begins with some scandal. I mean, there are a lot of sex scandals in this, uh, or reputed scandals in this uh, story, and this involves Hugh, Count of Jaffa, and go on, take take the ball and run. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So. Yeah, well, when Melisande comes to the throne, she is in many ways isolated. She's married to this older man. Her sisters have, you know, they're not at the court any longer. One sister's in Tripoli, one sister's in Antioch, one sister is in a convent. So, and in many ways, and she's married to this much older husband who is trying to keep her from the power to which she is entitled by her father's will. In the early part of their reign, Fulk and Melisande do not share power. Melisande's name is not no longer on the charters. Fulk is passing a lot of the laws on his own. So Melisande is being shunted, shunted out um, and kept at arm's length. And during this time, we learn of this very close friendship developing or continuing with her cousin, 
Count Hugh of Jaffa, who, by virtue of being her cousin and a nobleman and a favour of her father, is given a lot of, you know, intimate access. You know, he's allowed to spend time with Melisande en famille, you know. Um, and rumours begin to circulate that they are not just friends, they're having an affair. And at the same time, well, and, you know, to what extent those rumours are true cannot be known. Um, and there are many reasons why Fulk would seek to create those rumours and spread them himself, even though theoretically they make him look bad, because Fulk, uh, because Hugh is an enemy of Fulk. Hugh is someone who represents the interests of the local nobility in Outremer. So Fulk is an outsider who's come in with the Angevin strangers, who's come in with his soldiers, his knights, his his posse, his entourage from France. And Hugh of Jaffa represents the local nobility, the descendants of the Crusaders. And there is this there is this factionalism, this tension between these two groups. And Hugh is strongly of the opinion that Fulk is pushing Melisande out and he's pushing the local nobility out. And this is the this is the political issue at the heart of this this sex scandal. We don't know whether they were having an affair or they weren't, but we do know that Fulk and Hugh are at odds. And you know, this matter comes to a head where Hugh is challenged to trial by combat, um, something I'm sure everyone's familiar with from The Last Duel and from Game of Thrones and all these things, the sense that he has to prove his innocence in the ring. Um, and he's accused of treason. And, you know, it's not specifically, it's not specified what exactly this treason is, but, you know, it could be an affair with the Queen, it could be plotting to kill the Queen, whatever it is. And Hugh scarpers and does not show up for his hmm. trial by combat, which is not very chivalrous, but it's probably quite sensible because the man that he's been chosen to fight against is the strongest man in the kingdom, so he probably wouldn't have made it. And this this plunges the kingdom into civil war. And Hugh, like Alice, attempts to ally with Islamic enemies. He, had, he had tries to ally with the Egyptians of Ascalon. Um, and Fulk quickly puts down his rebellion and he was sentenced to exile but before he goes there's an assassination attempt made on him and following this and his eventual death Melisande steps out of the shadows she stops being meek she stops allowing other people to fight her cause she fights for herself and her fury knows no bounds and the chronicles attest that she was so terrifying that not that Fulk and all of his entourage were scared to be in her presence. They were scared of being assassinated. They were, they ran in fear of their lives from her. And from that day forward, Melisande became an equal, if not the senior partner in her relationship with Fulk. She thoroughly cowed him and she managed to finally lay her hands on the power to which she was entitled and assert power and authority. And we see this dramatic shift because following this, Melisande's name is on the charters as well. Melisande is ruling equally with Fulk. He does nothing without her agreement. And we also see that they make up as a couple, because not long after this, firstly, Melisande is, we believe, given this very beautiful prayer book, presumably as a priest offering from her husband. But perhaps the greatest proof that they managed to make up following this argument is that another son is born. So then a second child comes, um, which is a sign that things are stabilising a bit. And then Fulk dies tragically, uh, in a hunting in accident, a hunting accident. Um, and Melisande becomes basically ruler again. Uh, in, Indeed. Um, so briefly, one, one important thing um, uh, in any medieval ruler is their role as a patron of the arts, a patron of architecture. So mm-hmm. what does she do in terms of architectural patronage in, uh, in, in the Latin East? 
Yeah, it's a great question, and it's a particularly relevant question for female uh, for female rulers because art and architectural patronage is a big part of how they demonstrate their influence when they are excluded from the battlefield. And Melisande manages to retain authority and power for as long as she does because she makes such a great friend of the church and the people of Jerusalem. And she does this by massively improving the city. So the covered markets that stand in the, the Sooks of Jerusalem to this day were those built by Melisande. Um, the improvements, you know, she she made improvements to the cathedral, the Armenian Cathedral of St. James. And she it was under her, it was during her reign that the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was united into one building the way that we see it today. So, you know, before her, it would have stood in slightly separate parts and they brought the, under her rule that was all brought together. So this is a major display of support and patronage for the church um, and has left a, you know, a, you know, a mark on the city of Jerusalem that lasts to this day. We can walk down the covered markets commissioned by Melisande. We can see the Church of St. Anne. We can see the remains of the convent of Bethany, which she built for her sister. Um, And the Church of the Holy Sepulchre 100% bears the mark of Melisande's Melisande's patronage. Um, So we could, uh, probably up there, not with Herod the Great or Justinian, but certainly maybe in the top. No. (laughs) That's maybe maybe the top five. No, I'm gonna say she's she's just not up there. They're there. They, you know, they had they had more cash. She's she, she yeah, she's not up there. And you know, the priorities of the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem, they didn't have the luxury of built these building and expansion projects in the same way. And most of the buildings that the Christians built at this time, um, which we see today, are the, the great Crusader castles that we find across the Levant. And Melisande is not is not recorded as um, commissioning these to be built and things. But in terms of in terms of winning allegiance within the city of Jerusalem and within the church, she 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 really does she does well there, and we can see that in the architectural patronage. And it will also be an important factor when she comes into conflict with her son later in her reign. Well, let's. I mean, uh, how long does she reign before eventually Baldwin the Third decides, you know, is tugging at her sleeve and saying, "Hey, mum, I'd like to have a go, please." Oh, it's a good question. It's one I'd have to refer to my timeline to answer accurately. But it's a good, it's a good, it's a good few years. Um, so let's see. So Melison becomes regent. So so Fulk dies in 1143, and it's not until 1152 that Baldwin III manages to take power from his mother. But it, so it's a good nine years. But it's a kind of a strange situation because she is Queen Regnan under Baldwin II's will. So couldn't she, uh, I've always wondered about this, couldn't, in in what way does Baldwin III automatically inherit? Doesn't, isn't her will important in this as well? It's a, it's a thorny issue, but there's, there's no way that Baldwin II intended for Melisande to rule until her death, once Baldwin III was of age. You know, Melisande was invested with this power as a way to, stop Hulk getting too big for his boots and to right. ma- maintain maintain this link. But there's no way that Baldwin II wanted Merzon to rule indefinitely. And it's not what the kingdom wants either. Mm-hmm. Because the one the one and true limitation on a female ruler in this period is she can't command on the battlefield. That is not within that's not in her power and her training. And the Kingdom of Jerusalem and the Latin states being frontier states in an unstable region, they need a strong military leader on the throne. And the man that Melisande appoints as her, you know, her constable, her deputy, to be in charge of the military matters, Manassas of Hierge, is not popular. So this this was never the intention. And it and Melisande rules as regent for her son. So while Fulk is alive, she is his co-ruler. 
But when Fulk dies, she is ruling as regent for her son. And when her son comes of age in his teens, she should be ceding power to him. But she doesn't. And the reason for this is, A, she's a very capable ruler. And B, she has this incredibly strong power base in and around the in and around Jerusalem. You know, she's got she's got so many supporters, not least because she has beautified the city. She's supported the different she's supported the different racial and ethnic groups in the city. You know, she's made donations to Syria. You know, she aids um, refugees from Odessa. She aids the Armenian population. She gives a lot of money to the church. She grants land to the military orders. She really shores up her bases and creates this very, very significant power base, which makes it very difficult for her son to oust her from power when he comes of age. And it takes a good few years for him to work up, not only work up the courage to do it, but then also manoeuvre himself into a position where he can challenge her. And then eventually they do descend into civil war. And and she's besieged by her son. And I mean, it's like all the, this whole story, it overlays the Old Testament with the classical world, with the medieval world. She's besieged mm-hmm. in the Tower of David, you know, see, see also Song of Songs. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, and she's besieged by her son in the Tower of David. Uh, they're bombarding it with mangonels or trebuchets or what have you and um she spoiler alert she loses um yes exactly but it's 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 i think it's one of the most dramatic episodes in the whole i really i really believe it is in fact the most dramatic episode in the, the latin kingdom of Jerusalem. it's short-lived and it's you know it's inevitable that merzlan's defeated but a, a christian son besieging his christian mother in the tower of david <laughs> and i can just imagine you know Melazon sort of holding out while the while the walls crumble around her and like fire and stone falling and she holds out for something like three days before eventually negotiating terms of surrender and even in defeat she does all right you know yes okay she's no longer a co-ruler or a queen regnant but she still retains control of nablus which is a significant city and she maintains she maintains a significant amount of influence in political affairs following that and she maintains the respect of her son so even in defeat she manages to to handle the situation pretty well for herself and come off okay well there are lots of other thing other women to talk about we've we're going to have to in the interest of time skip over them i refer to numerous mm-hmm. The, tri- the love triangle of Agnes of Courtenay and Hugh of I- Eblin, 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 yeah. and Amalric, um, and then there's mm-hmm. Andron- the creepy figure of Andronicus Komnenos, uh, who who's nicknamed Loki, Greek- one of my favorite, ca- Loki, one of my favorite characters. Andronicus and Theodora uh, is my my favorite subplot. Yeah, it is uh, <laughs> a man known in Greek as the Sun Hater because eventually he blinded <laughs> so many people. So that's a little that's a little Byzantine yeah. a little Byzantine humor for you. Um, mm-hmm. So. Let's talk about this. Is I mean, this is a podcast. It's called historically thinking. So we got to talk about sources. Um, it's like required. Mm-hmm. As you point out, um, one of the interesting things about the Crusader kingdoms is that the sources are very rich, um, mm. which might be surprising to people. I mean, after all, they lost. Um, all the stuff should be burnt, but nonetheless, there's lots of stuff. Why? Why? Why is that? Why is there lots of stuff? Oh, because they left. They were driven out in dribs and drabs, you know. And the the fat and the West loved these stories. So you know, these chronicles were copied and circulated in the West. So it it wasn't. It's not the case, sort of like the destruction of Carthage and the burning of the libraries. I mean, don't get me wrong. The the Mamluks destroyed a lot of stuff and they they burned a lot of stuff. But a lot of stuff made it to Europe first because the Crusader states, just as they were conquered 
just as they were created sequentially, they fell sequentially. And there were ships going back and forth to Europe all the time, and they were taking the stuff with them. Um, and the stuff, the sources, the chronicles, the songs, of, and the artifacts from the East, they captured the imaginations of people in the West. People wanted things from Jerusalem. They were prized. They were, whole, you know, something that had been you know, olive, some olive wood from the Holy Land was worth so much in the West, you know, uh, fake relics, things that had touched the altar of Christ or these things had value. And so they were they were treasured in the West. But on top of that, you know, the stories were treasured in the West. This was as you've compared it to Arthurian romance and things, but it really did. This fell into the medieval romantic tradition. And, you know, when you have Thomas Mallory writing the Arthurian legends, Godfrey of Bouillon is, he is held up as one of the great heroes of of Christian law. So no, the, these stories were valuable and treasured by people in the East. And so these chronicles were copied and preserved. Um, and also, you know, it was the great adventure. You know, these this wasn't, you know, normal warfare between French counts and French counts and dukes over border disputes. This was the great adventure of Europeans marching east into the unknown to reclaim Christ's kingdom. And the first crusade was a success. So this just this story just went viral, if you like, in the medieval terms. Everyone wanted to read about it. And so many people went on this quest and so many churchmen as well. And churchmen are the people writing chronicles. So we have very rich chronicles. And the other fact when we talk about richness is that, you know, this is at the centre of all these different cultures and religions. And the men writing these chronicles are, you know, they're learned men. They've read the classics. You know, they've read Homer in translation. They've read Virgil. They've read Horace. The, the, the chronicles are scattered with references to these classical texts. And this boundary between history and literature that we sort of perceive today was was not a thing in those days. So, you know, they're writing these historical texts as works of literature. So they embellish, they give us characters, they make the characters larger than life. And, you know, and sometimes this makes you have to doubt the accuracy of exactly what they're saying. But in terms of in terms of capturing the imagination and breathing life into the events, these chronicles are amazing and they're very well written and they're they're very poetic in places. You you've mentioned one of the interesting sources that you, you you've already mentioned in the course of our conversation is the the Psalter. It's in the British Library. Uh, and it's mm. and it's and it's on its as you say, on the spine, I think it's sewed Melisande's Psalter or Psalter de oh, Melisande. No, alas, no, that's that's modern now. That's, that's what modern. we call it now, the Melisande Psalter. The original the original spine is um embroidered Byzantine silk, but we know it belonged to Melisande okay. because in the almanac and sort of calendar at the beginning of the, the Psalter, the Psalter's you know prayers and holy in religious texts. And at the beginning there's an, a calendar um with dates marked on which to pray, right? Mm -hmm. And the two dates that are marked in this calendar that tell us that this book belongs to Melisande's are that the date of her mother's death are in the Psalter and the date of her father's death. So we know that this Psalter was made for a daughter of Baldwin II and more, more fear of Melitine. And the only two candidates it could be would be Yvette mm -hmm. and would be Melisande's. And all the evidence points to Melisande that this came from the scriptorium of the Jerusalem and that it was made for her because it has a, a falcon carved on the front, which is always seen as an image of folk. So that's uh, why it's believed nice. this. Yeah, so that's why it's believed that the Psalter was a gift from folk to so his you, wife. I'd like just like to highlight what you just did. You just you just mm. walk through the diagnostic of evidence there. It's like mm. uh, you, you, the, uh, the, first of all, the sort of Byzantine embroidery, the uh, two dates, the falcon, um, it, okay, that's very nice. And that's, and that's, yeah. how, that's how you're making the source 
tell us things. Speak, yeah. Yeah, speak. And it also, and this 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 prayer book stands as testament to so many things. It's the, the rich, the multicultural diversity of the kingdom of Jerusalem, because you have art by you have it in it incorporates arts by at least five different artists and it has artistic influences from all these different cultures it has islamic influences it has byzantine influences it has western influences it's got syriac influences and armenian influences so it's it's it really does encapsulate the the multicultural nature of the kingdom of jerusalem and what's even more amazing as a connection for me is that we know that this is an object that melazond used as a devotional aid in prayer and if you look you can look for signs of medieval use in the text. And if you look at the illuminations, the images, you can see that the hands and feet of Christ are the parts that are worn away the most. Um, and you can imagine Melazon touching and kissing the feet of Christ as she prayed. And these so this is this book has this remarkable connection with this this queen about whom we know so little. But I, I, we can see and hold this book. It's amazing. I'm surprised um, these days we might be able to find DNA on it. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. They'd have to. They'd have to bring it up again and let the scientists yeah, ask it again. Yeah. But maybe. Um, I, so, in, just to, to wrap up, um, what made? And we've we've. I, I wanted to focus mainly on Melisande in this conversation because I think she's such an extraordinary person. I'm not saying woman. I'm just saying she's just an extraordinary medieval character. Um, just pure, mm. period. Underline. Um, Mm-hmm. And she's, but she's one. I, the, the book is filled with these her sisters, uh, cousins, nieces. What made the queens of Jerusalem such extraordinary political and social figures? Was it, uh, you know, some people say, well, it's just genetics. They're all related. This is extraordinary family. Me, I'm immediately going for like a cultural explanation. Is it because it's a frontier society? Is because they're so the men died so fast? Um, what's the yeah. reason for this? <laughs> So, I mean, it's it's a mixture of all the, the 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 clear fact is that these women had formidable role models. You know, they influenced each other. Yes. So, if a mother, if a daughter sees her mother acting this way, it makes her think that she can, and maybe she'll push it further. And there is clearly they are intelligent and, and ambitious women, and I'm sure part of that is genetic and also the environment they're raised in. But yes, they have more opportunities, and society is more is and society is forced to accept the bitter pill of female rule because yes the men are dying the average age for a native born king in jerusalem is early 20s the average age for a native born king in france is late 50s the men in this the men in the society are just dropping like flies and as evidenced by melisande and her four sisters more daughters are being born and even when you do have a son being born so in the uh, with alongside the daughter in the case of balls in the fourth and Seville of jerusalem balls in the fourth gets leprosy and Bohemond II of Antioch is killed in battle, and so his wife survives him. So there are all these opportunities, which of, of the men dying and more women being born, that push women to positions of prominence. And also because it is an isolated society, you know, it isn't bordering. It's not like a French county bordering another with a cousin in the next city over and this, that and the other where other men can step in. They have a manpower shortage and the importance of bloodline is, is pivotal in this time. So women you know, through necessity and through the ability and driving characters of these women, the women are able to step into positions of power more readily than they are in Europe at this time. Well, my guest today has been Catherine Pangonis. She's author of Queens of Jerusalem, The Women Who Dared to Rule. Catherine, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. That's great. 
But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook. 